Well, good evening. Good to see you. Well, if it caught you, I don't see any kids out here. There's youth group tonight. So hopefully we have a few back there. Truth for youth tonight. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your son. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here as a family of faith, that we have the even this facility to gather in. Pray that you'd even give us wisdom with the caretaking of it as from time to time we have various things come up that we need wisdom and guidance on in terms of even maintaining it. So pray that you'd undertake with those things and just guide us as far as how to best preserve and maintain what you've entrusted us with. Pray that we would have our priority and our focus be on how you want to use just even an inanimate object like this building for your honor and glory as just a facility for us to gather in so that we could corporately lift you up and shine your light into each other's lives and into the lives of those in the community around us. Pray that you give me wisdom and those teaching truth for youth and even the youth group tonight to proclaim your truth in a way that would be encouraging and convicting and uplifting at the same time in a way that would encourage us to get our eyes and our focus on you, to be looking towards heavenly things, having an eternal mindset, being vertically minded as we go through life so that we wouldn't get caught up and distracted and discouraged by the circumstances and the trials and even the troubles that we face in this life. Pray that everything that is said and did, done could bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As a quick reminder, there is a congregational meeting next Wednesday, so that's something to keep in mind and being, pray, being prayerful about. But we'll start our service here tonight. The title of tonight's message is, Where Are You, Lord? Where Are You? There's often a disconnect between known truth and applied truth. There's two different biblical words that are even used in the New Testament to describe those two, the distinction between those two concepts, the concept of known truth and then applied truth. And the one word is gnosis, the other word is epignosis. And the two of them communicate two different things. One is just to know or be aware or, or understand truth, and the other is to have a deeper knowledge or awareness that's referring to this present practical application of that truth to practical everyday life. And you see, the Bible rever reveals a vast array of truths. There's lots of different ones you could talk of in terms of doctrine, in terms of who we are, who God is, his character, what God's plan is for us, what God's plan is for eternity, what the, the final outcome of everything will be, how God's going to make everything right, where did I come from, why am I here. There's truth about all of those different things, the truth about even uh, the application of human relationships, husbands and wives, children and their parents, workers and their employers and members of the body of Christ, how that's to function, how it's to be arranged, all kinds of truths. And a maturing Christian, he learns those truths over time. But you first learn them in an academic sense, but then comes the process of maturing even further where you learn them and apply them to life. How do you, I take these learned truths or these truths that I become aware of and allow them to be practically evident and manifest in my day-to-day -day living. And one of those truths or an example 
of truths that the believer needs to come to know is that God is always present and never forsakes his children. So that's a known truth that, in fact, that was likely one of the first truths you were taught about your God, perhaps even from a very young age. But although that is easy to be taught, it's easy for somebody to say, it's easy for you to learn that in an academic type of a way, it's much more difficult to appropriate that truth, even though it's a fixed truth, by faith in your practical life. So when it comes to practical living, that can be very difficult, especially when you're facing injustice, especially when you're facing mistreatment or overt ungodliness. This truth that God is always present and never forsakes his children, is that something that you can appropriate by faith in the moment while you're in the face of that difficult trouble or trial where you're under attack, where you're facing the realities of living in a sin-cursed world where you're confronted by the wickedness of man and even the wickedness of your own sin nature within yourself? Are you going to practically appropriate by faith that principle or that truth that God is always present and never forsakes his children. You see, in the face of adversity, it's natural to wonder, why doesn't God intervene? Why, why isn't God rescuing me as I'm praying to him for rescue? Or even, where is he? And there's their title for tonight, Where Are You, Lord? You see, David struggled with the practical application of this known truth, too. Again, just focusing on this one specific known truth, that God is always present and never forsakes his children. David didn't have it all together all of the time. We know that from the study of his life. You don't have it all together all of the time, and we struggle at times with applying that in, a mo- in faith, in adversity, or difficult times that we face in life. So let's take a look at how his struggle was communicated as it relates to this particular truth in Psalm 10. So let's just read Psalm 10. We're not going to have as much focus on all of it as other parts, but we'll read through it here tonight. Turn there if you haven't already to Psalm 10. And you see, the gist of this psalm is that David has come to a place mentally where to some extent he's equating God's presence with God's physical intervention in the practical realities of life. That if God were present, if God were to be aware of or hear what he was going through, God would intervene intervene in the way that David thought he should. And in David's idea of intervention, God should judge those that are oppressing him. And so that would be evidence that God was present. And because God isn't, pre- God isn't judging, at least as he can see it, the wicked or the oppressors, then God must not be paying attention or God not, must not be present. And just ask yourself, have you ever thought like that or had to deal with those kinds of thoughts or feelings in the past in your Christian life? But let's read the, the psalm. It starts out with a very raw, emotional description here of where David's really at. He says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. 
he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do you... Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the, father of the, you are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. So it's an interesting psalm. It's something that I think at least in parts we can relate to, so let's dive in a little bit deeper. But the first two verses here are, where are you, Lord? That's, that's the summary. Where are you? So we have, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? What's going on that's causing him to think that? The wicked in his pride persecutes the, the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. He's saying, I'm seeing wickedness around me. I don't see it being judged. I don't see there being consequences to that. So my conclusion is God is afar off and God is hiding in times of trouble instead of intervening. You see, being a child of God doesn't make you a spiritual superhero. It doesn't mean that you're always mature in your faith. It doesn't mean that you're always understanding who God is or even the principles of the things of faith clearly. At times, you're not operating from an eternal perspective with a heavenly focus. You're not being directed and led by thinking that is led by God or directed by God in your life. You're thinking like a normal human being who's walking in his own by his own sight instead of walking as directed by the wisdom of the Lord and so that happens you're still human so you struggle to understand at times supernatural or infinite things that's unavoidable in, unavoidable in some ways you can be overwhelmed you still experience fear and vulnerability you still have a perspective at times that is not God's perspective and David was no different. I think you see it very clearly here in these first two words. You see, the psalm opens with two questions which reveal his confusion and frustration. Neither one of these things, both of these things are the farthest from the truth. And, and David knows better. So as you read, why do you stand afar off, O, o Lord? Does David actually think that God is far away? That God has no interest in him? That God doesn't care about him? That God isn't concerned about what he's going through? Well, in this moment, he's starting to doubt or have questions that he doesn't have 
the answers to. He says, why do you hide in times of trouble? Now, that's what David is feeling or his perception of reality. But you can read other places where David certainly doesn't think that all of the time. But here he's in a place where his humanity is coming to the surface. He's overwhelmed. He's fearful. He's vulnerable. He doesn't understand why God would allow this to go on without intervening and doing something about it. See, both of these statements represent David's perception, but both are fundamentally wrong and actually impugn God's character. That's what David is doing with both of these questions or statements. You see, in Joshua 1.9, it says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did David understand that principle? Had it been taught to him? Had he experienced it even in real time in his own life? And the answer is yes, he had. But yet here in this particular trial, facing this particular trouble, he was shaken in his faith. In Psalm 46.1, you could read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble or in trouble, depending on what variation you're looking at. He's very present help. He will never leave us or forsake us. You know, even in the experience of the nation of Israel, this idea that God was with them, that God would fight their battles for them, that God would undertake for them, that God would provide for him, that he'd be there with them, even the kind of glory in the tabernacle, right in their midst, that he would pitch his tent among them. It was fundamental to what David had been taught or understood, even about the history of his own people, the nation of Israel. How God had been a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by, now, by night, how he had led and undertaken, whether it was to make a way at the Red Sea, whether it was to make a way at the Jordan River where they could pass across on dry land. David had heard these things. He had experienced, and even in his own life, these kind of things, but yet he found himself in a place where he was confused and frustrated, and his natural way of thinking came to the surface. And this is why Christians need to be directed by truth and not feelings. Your emotions and your feelings were given to you by God, so it's not my, my point isn't to do what some do, which is to say feelings are always bad. God gives us feelings. He gave us emotions. He made us to be a creation or a created beings that experience those things and, and have those feelings. But it's not good to be directed exclusively by your emotions or your feelings because the way you're feeling can lead you astray. The other thing is to, you're not told as a child of God to trust your perceptions. You're told to trust God's word, to look to God's truth, the source of truth being his word and the spirit of truth working inside you for your direction because your perception of reality or your perception of truth can lead you astray. It's not always accurate. So David had a perception here that God had abandoned him, forgotten him, wasn't aware of what was going on, had neglected him in some way, but yet he was incorrect. Now, why is David feeling this way? Now, verse 2 gives us the context. He is experiencing persecution at the hands of wicked men, and God isn't responding the way David thinks he should or not in the timing that David thinks he should. Now think about that. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Think about that even in your own life as you pray about things. Uh, under the guise that 
you believe or your perception is you're giving them to the Lord, but yet you're not really. Because in giving them to the Lord, it would be to trust his response, to trust his timing, to trust his answer, to trust his direction. But you give them to the Lord and then back to Panic Palace when God hasn't undertaken to answer or respond in exactly the time and in exactly the way that you think he should. Have you ever experienced that? I certainly have. Where on one hand you, you know I need to give this to the Lord. On the other hand, God, why aren't you, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you undertaking? And the whole time you're saying, I've promised to work every set of circumstances together for your good and for your benefit and for my glory. Will you trust me? Will you trust that my answer is that I'm going to lead you through this? I'm going to comfort you in this. I'm going to grow you in this. I'm going to mature you in this. I'm going to refine you in this. But I'm not going to take away the struggle or the trial or the hardship. Could you trust that? Could you take that from me? Or if I don't take away the struggle and the conflict and the wickedness in this context, are you going to start thinking God doesn't know what he's doing? God's not present. God doesn't care. God's not good. God doesn't love me. God doesn't know best. And you see, that's where the deception of the flesh comes in there. That's where the teaching of the world comes in there. That God should act in a certain kind of a way. And that we should or we deserve to understand everything about what God is doing. God never promised us that at all. He never once promised you that he would reveal everything about his supernatural plan to you. Or that the infinite things of God would be understood by you with a finite existence and a finite mind. But yet we take a posture sometimes that in fact holds out this attitude or, or conveys this attitude that God owes me something. He, he has to explain himself to me. What God is doing has to make sense to me. And that's, I feel like, a perfect description of where David is here. So then we move on. We see a description of the wicked man's thinking. Now, the thing that's shaken David is that he's not seeing God respond to the wicked the way he thinks he should, through judgment. But yet there's this really neat description of the wicked man's thinking here in verses 3 and 4, and I think this is fascinating. So verse 3, he says, For the wicked, now what is, his, what is his mindset? He boasts of his heart's desire. Now on one hand that's action, but on the other hand it's thinking, because he's focused on what he's interested in, what he desires, and that's what he wants to talk about. That's what he wants to fixate on. What else does he do? The wicked man blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. You're saying, you're saying pride is synonymous with doing your own thing and not seeking the Lord? Yeah, because it's a humble heart that seeks after God and sees, I'm nothing. I am desperately hopeless and helpless apart from you, God. And it's only through your working in my life, working in and through me, that I could ever live a life that would have any purpose in time have any value in eternity or could possibly please you or bring you glory in any way. It's only a humble heart that could do that. Now that humble heart would say, without you I'm lost. Without you I lose my way. So the humble heart is seeking God's direction, but not the one who is described here as wicked. The next thing we see is that the wicked, for the wicked man, God is in none of his thoughts. God is in none of his thoughts. A description of one who is described here as 
the wicked. Now, I think this is very interesting because wickedness is nothing more than, than an, an expression of the rejection of God. This Hebrew word that is translated wicked here, it means guilty or ungodly. So now you could think about that in a positional tense, a, a, a positional sense. Is the person ungodly in the sense that they've rejected the provision of God to deal with man's sinfulness, rejected God's way of redemption? So on one hand, are you without God in this world in the sense that are you without God if you haven't put your faith in God's solution for your sinfulness, his way of rescue, the salvation plan that he's made possible? Well, yes, you'd be guilty. You'd still be under God's wrath, guilty for having rejected the substitute that is Jesus Christ in our context, the person and work of Jesus. So you'd stand condemned having rejected the one solution that God provided to deal with your sinfulness. But then in a practical sense, not a positional sense, could you be guilty and ungodly in the sense that you were trying to live life or do life apart from God? To, to be ungodly is to be without God. And could any person be guilty of trying to do life or go through life or live life apart from God, leaning on his own understanding instead of trusting the Lord? Walking by sight instead of walking by faith, depending on self instead of operating in complete dependence on him. Uh, absolutely. That's certainly true or could be true or could describe anybody. So you see that there's this rejection of God. It represents man's natural tendency. Man naturally seeks his own thing. Man naturally depends on himself. Man naturally has a self-help plan in place or mindset that says, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. And it's a byproduct of exalting and worshiping self and pride. It's a me-first mentality or perspective. That's why you see the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. What's his focus? His focus is on self. His focus is prideful. His focus is me first. My heart's desire is the thing that matters most. What will make me happy and how can I get my hands on it? See, self-focus leads to thinking that rejects God. And that's why I love those descriptions of the mindset that is rejecting God. Renounces the Lord, it says, does not seek God. But the best of all three of those is God is in none of his thoughts. God is in none of his thoughts. And all of these things can and do describe anybody who is rebelling against God. It's in the context you're likely referring to unbelievers. But I just think about when we are having problems in our lives and we are God's children, when things aren't going well spiritually, which of these things is likely true? Isn't it common for when we're struggling with rebellion against God, when we're operating in carnality, isn't it true that these things most often would describe that mindset? Renouncing the Lord does not seek God. Isn't the one who is operating independently apart from God in that position? But the best again is God is in none of his thoughts. Ask yourself, when you're not in fellowship, when you're not enjoying the Lord, what in fact is the problem? God is in none of your thoughts. When you're distracted by the things of this world, what is the underlying problem? God is in none of your thoughts. You've become distracted by something else. 
When the baubles and the shining lights and the flashing lights of the world have captivated your attention and your focus is now on something else other than him, what is the problem? The real problem is that God is in none of your thoughts. In that moment, you're operating with a human mindset, with a human perspective, with an earthly perspective, instead of a heavenly, divine, Christ-centered perspective. And there's no success in that. There's no way to prosper in that. There's no way forward in your spiritual walk with the Lord when your mindset is one that practically God is not included. You see, the man of faith, what defines a walk of faith is that it includes God with an attitude of dependence on God to do for you what you could not and cannot ever do for yourself. So what an interesting way to describe the one that's ungodly, the way that that one thinks. And it's easy to disassociate from the definition of wicked. When you hear that word, you're like, ah, that's not me. That could never describe me. That describes these people around me, these, these people around me that are so awful. They're so twisted in their thinking. It's all this other ideology that, that I know is wrong. But you see, it can be just as wicked when God is in none of your thoughts practically, but you're doing all the right things, saying all the right things, or pretending to be something that in that moment you're not, though positionally you are God's child. You are set apart. He does have a plan and a purpose for you. God is in none of your thoughts. May that not be true of us as we go through our days. Again, in this context, the wicked man's thinking, David is likely focusing on his enemies. Now, David's enemies were, were many, and they came from a variety of places. They weren't just enemies from without, they were enemies from within. And so, certainly he could be even describing here the wicked in the sense of those that were a part of the nation of Israel, part part of his, even his own family, uh, that knew God's truth or had been confronted with God's truth, but yet were persecuting him, were rebelling against him. Also, obviously, there was a lot of enemy nations that were seeking to overthrow the nation of Israel that plagued the nation of Israel repeatedly during David's time, during his tenure. And so certainly that's what he could be referring to, too. But now we get to the heart of it. Wickedness seems to prosper. Let's read verse 5. Verse five. So we're talking context. We're talking about the wicked. We're talking about the one that's ungodly. David's real issue here is that instead of God judging the wicked, they seem to prosper. Verse 5, his ways, referring to the wicked man, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. So it's really the first part of this verse that I want to focus on here first. Wickedness seems to prosper, and that is upsetting to David. That's the issue he has here. That's why he's saying, where is God? Where are you, Lord? Those that are wicked and ungodly seem to prosper while I'm suffering under their oppression. That's the real issue. And you see... That's what David is struggling to understand. You can sense the frustration in the way this is said. The wicked, in his proud, no, I'm sorry, his ways are always prospering, this wicked man. And you see, people of faith have struggled with this throughout history. This is something that the natural mind has trouble with. Now, part of the reason the natural mind has trouble with this is because the natural mind has a higher view of himself than he, than he ought to. And so on one hand, there's this sense that 
God's goodness is deserved by some and God's judgment is deserved by others. Now, in the greatest sense of that, and if you peeled back all the layers and got to the core of that, is that even fundamentally true? There's none righteous, no, not one. All have gone out of their way. All stand guilty. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. See, in, from a human perspective, God doesn't look at mankind and say, here's one that deserves my mercy, my grace, and my goodness more so than another. See, every man stands equally guilty before a sinless and a holy and a perfect, spotless God. But yet, at the same time, the natural inclination of man is to have a sense that there are some that deserve God's judgment and there are some that do not. But that has kind of a forgetful, forgetfulness to it, where a forgetting where you, the pit that you were dug from to it. Turn to Job 21. You could, we could read a big section of Job. When I talk about people of faith having struggled with this idea throughout history, Job is the oldest book in the Bible, at least as I understand that. I guess I've never studied that specifically, but that's a factoid I guess I was taught. Job 21, one of Job's discourses. He speaks to this idea that this is something that he struggles with too. Okay, Job 21.7. This is Job, one of his answers. And he says this, Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power? He goes on to say their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their sight, meaning they could live long lives too. Why is that when they're wicked? Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them, meaning God doesn't discipline or punish them for this. Why is that, he's saying? Their bull breeds without failure, their cows, their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and, the, and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth. So, I mean, there's a description there, even with Job, saying, why is that? Why is that, why is that true? That, that God wouldn't judge them instantly, even though they're described or identified as being wicked, just as David describes and identifies his oppressors as being wicked. You see, why does God allow evil? I mean, this is one of the most fundamental apologetic type of questions that men of faith have wrestled with since the very beginning. Why does God allow the wicked to prosper? Why does he allow evil? If God hates evil, and he does, if God has the power to stop evil, and he does, why doesn't he? Why does wickedness seem to prosper without any consequences or deterrence? That's what David is really getting at here. And we're not going to resolve these age-old questions here tonight. There is no one complete or satisfactory answer to these questions, but the fact is that God does allow wickedness to exist and seemingly prosper. But there's a couple of thoughts that we should touch on here because this is the heart of this psalm. Where are you, Lord? But a bigger part of it is, where are you, Lord, in terms of punishing those that are oppressing me or those that are wicked? Why aren't you doing that, God? So a couple of thoughts to consider. One is God is not the author 
of the opposition against himself. So God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of wickedness. See, ungodliness is the opposite of who and what God is. So we have to start with those fixed truths. Then we come to the idea that God gave man the ability to choose to accept or reject him. So we come to God having decided in his wisdom, he decided to allow man to have a volition, to make a choice to accept or reject him. See, to reject God is to be ungodly or without God. But when you think about that rejection of him, the Bible also teaches that mankind is universally guilty of rejecting God in some fashion. So there's no such thing as having not rejected God at all. Men are described as having been dead in trespasses and sins. Men are described as ungodly. If you looked at Romans 5, 6, let's turn there, we might as well. This is a description of the state of being or a state of affairs that every man found himself in. So it wasn't like there were some that were seeking after God. There were some that were righteous. No, there was none of them. It wasn't like some were closer to God or were more attractive to God in some way. No, all men were described as dead in trespasses and sins. It says, for when we were without strength, meaning we were weak, at that time, at that exact time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. I touched on this on Sunday. That's why it's fresh in my mind. But how else? Are, are, are mankind described, all of mankind. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're described there as being without strength or weak, in other passages, dead in trespasses and sin. Here we have, we're sinners. Verse 10, we have, we were enemies. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the description of all men is that we're ungodly, that we're sinful, that we are without hope, that we are dead, that we are enemies of God. And so that is the truth that the Bible communicates. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one that is less deserving of God's mercy and grace, or sorry, more deserving of God's mercy and grace, or, or less deserving of God's mercy and grace. Every man has the same need and is in equal need of God undertaking through his grace, his love, and his mercy to make a way for mankind. So part of the issue with this kind of thinking about why does God do nothing about evil or why does God not undertake in these ways, it's answered by thinking that somehow there were some that deserved God's wrath or God's judgment more so than others. But man is universally guilty of rejecting God. Now how is mankind's rejection expressed? It's expressed by practical sinfulness and wickedness. It all comes back to a rejection of God in some way, shape, or form. But it's expressed through practical sinfulness and wickedness. Now, to eliminate evil or wickedness would mean, or it would involve eliminating the wicked. Which would mean God would have to take everyone away. So there's a type of way of starting to think through this, this idea of why is God allowing suffering? Why is God allowing evil? Why is God allowing wickedness? Because if he wouldn't allow it, then there could be no people because all are judged or are equally described as being ungodly and wicked. Now, could God have prevented wickedness and evil and sin? And the answer is yes, but not 
not while at the same time allowing mankind to have a volition. So as soon as God decided that he would be glorified by allowing man the ability to choose, even knowing that man would choose to rebel and reject him, he determined that by man having a choice, when man would choose him instead of the alternative, that that would bring him glory because man would be doing that in the face of an alternative. It wouldn't bring him glory if man chose him because they had to. It brought him glory, or at least this is how God saw it. It brought him glory that man, though having the capacity to reject him, chose instead to respond to his loving pursuit of them. That brought him glory. So having chose to allow volition, then he had to choose to allow for the possibility that man would sin and reject him, would operate in evil and wickedness, and that there would be human suffering. And God allowed those byproducts for the sake of having the original choice to begin with. You see, instead of, instead of eliminating the wicked, which would be the only way to eliminate wickedness, God allows mankind to suffer the consequences of rejecting him. But although, although God allows suffering, he also comforts, he accompanies, encourages, and provides for his children in the face of suffering. Meaning that what David should have seen here, and I think we'll see that he does come around, what David see, w should have seen here is that God doesn't promise to take away wickedness or suffering, but he promises to be present with you in the face of that suffering. He promises to comfort you, to provide for you, to encourage you in the face of that suffering. But he doesn't promise that he'll take it away in, in time. He says in eternity, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more sin, because I will make it perfect again. I'll make it all right. See, one day God will eliminate all suffering because he will eliminate all sin. But at the same time, he'll also eliminate free will in a sense because man isn't going to have the capacity to sin in his regenerated, not his regenerated, his glorified state. That's going to be the end of it. There will be no more sin. And because there's no more sin, there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sadness. All of the things that are tied to the fact that there's sin. But what is, again, you come all the way back full circle. The reason is that, that there's sin is because God gave man choice and then he let man deal with the consequences of that choice and it affected and it permeated and it tainted all of the world around us, all of creation. It tainted us in terms of our physical bodies and it tainted us in terms of our spiritual relationship with God. And all of those things were a byproduct of that design by God. Now, is that a full answer to that question? Would that answer have satisfied Job ultimately? To some extent, what did satisfy Job was recognizing that God's thoughts were not his thoughts, that God's ways were not his ways, that God didn't owe him anything. What ultimately got Job back to a place where he was in a proper framework was to be confronted with the idea that where were you? Who, are, who do you think you are? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were, where were you when I made the moon and the sun? Where were you when I created the world? So who are you? Who do you think you are? That I, I, ha I owe you some sort of an explanation about why I haven't done away with suffering or why I allow suffering. The better question man should be asking is, why, is God pour out, why does God pour out his goodness on filthy wretches like us? It shouldn't be, why does God allow evil? And I think that is a good example or explanation for it. 
But the better question is, why would God be merciful? Why would God be loving? Why would God undertake to make a way for us to live with him in time and in eternity? Why would God bankrupt heaven to save filthy wretches like you and I? Why is God ever good to us? Why is God ever with us? Why does God care about us at all? Who is man that God would be mindful of him? You just only have to go back two Psalms and you're in a place where David is saying on one hand, who am I that God would give one rip about me? And now he's in a place where he's saying, why doesn't God rescue me from my suffering? Why doesn't God judge the wicked? And you come back to, God doesn't owe you an explanation for that. Now we see the wicked man's behaviors. We have the wicked man's thinking. Then we see the real problem of all of this. What has gotten David out of whack is that he can't understand why the wicked seem to prosper. Now we see the wicked man's behavior. We're going to go a lot quicker here. This isn't the focus of my attention on this psalm. But he describes the wicked man's thinking manifests itself in various external ways. So it all comes back to a mental rejection of God, but how does that manifest itself practically in the one who is rejecting God? In the one who's described as having boasting of his heart's desire, renouncing the Lord, not seeking God, and having God in none of his thoughts, how does that kind of thinking play out in the wicked man's behavior? So you have a bunch of them here. You have verse 6, well, the end of verse 5, he sneers at his enemies. He said in his heart, I will not be moved, meaning I'm not going to be shaken in any way from my current position. I will never have anything bad happen to me. That's a paraphrase of I should never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. He's preying on people. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless, takes advantage of people. He lies in wait secretly, like a lion in his den waiting to pounce. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net, takes advantage of the less fortunate. He crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see, meaning I'm never going to be held accountable for this. So David kind of breaks this thought and then goes back to the description, but he says, Arise, O Lord. He doesn't understand why God wouldn't put an end to that. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. He's saying basically lift up your hand and smack these people. Punish them. Judge them. Do not forget the humble. He has this perspective that God has abandoned him just because he's being oppressed. Again, it couldn't be further from the truth, but that's his perspective, which is flawed in this moment. Now, why did the wicked renounce God? Now, what's a description of this wicked man? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account, meaning I'll never be held accountable for what I am doing. You see, one thing I hope you observed in us going through those relatively quickly is that most of these descriptions are very obvious and overt descriptions of what would be ungodly or would be in opposition to God. 
But one of the things that I hope you take away and I hope you see in this is that the flesh is equally capable of expressing rebellion and rejection of God more deceptively through things like self-righteousness, judgmentalism, human goodness, an independent and proud spirit that is seeking to live life or do things without God's input, direction, or power. You know, the focus here of David is he's, he's seeing himself as righteous, which in fact, in this current mindset, he's actually off the rails. He's not operating in a place of spiritual strength here or spiritual fellowship or dependence on God. He doesn't even understand God's truth in this moment. He's frustrated and fearful and agitated about the oppression that he's seeing by those around him, about the sense that they're prospering and God's doing nothing about it. This isn't a sign of spiritual maturity in this moment. It's a, it's a sign of being deceived. And it's interesting that he fixates on all the things that he can say about himself, that I'm not doing these things. I see a distinction between myself and these things. But you see, we're back to this idea that if man really was honest and humble with himself, he would see that he's equally deserving of God's judge judgment or discipline or intervention based on his own behavior, his own improper thinking, as the overt kind of things. How, how easy is it for the man who is a man of faith even to start becoming judgmental, start becoming self-righteous, start becoming hypocritical, start becoming phony and fake and inauthentic because you've learned to put on a certain facade or to live a certain way that's not even, it's not even genuine. Now it can be, but at times it's not because the flesh is always seeking another way to manifest itself that it can get away with. And so very often the flesh has to change tactics. And instead of focusing on lying in wait to catch the poor, lying in wait like a lion who's gonna try to murder somebody in the dark, the flesh just manifests itself differently. And so anyway, that's a passing, passing thought here. See, David is naturally focused on the physical temporal realm where it appears that wickedness is prospering and that sin has no negative consequences. But you see, the Bible says that there is consequences to living life apart from God. Come all the way back to this description, God is in none of his thoughts. That's the issue. The issue is that he's not seeking God, that he's renouncing the Lord. That's the issue. The way that that ends up playing itself out is purely secondary to the rebellion and rejection against God. But what's David focused on? Is he focused on the mindset, the thinking behind the behavior? No, he's focusing on the oppression and the behavior and not seeing that God says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that, will he, that, that, which, that is which he will also reap. That will he also reap. God doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. Sin has consequences, very real consequences in time. It has consequences in eternity in the sense of missed opportunities to enjoy the Lord in time and to even have responded to God in faith positionally so that you could be called a child of God, could live life with him, could even store up for yourself treasures in heaven where you could be rewarded for faithful service and trusting the Lord in time. That's all missed. If one never puts their faith in God and re remains, remains operating in rebellion and rejection of, in our context in today, the church age, the age of grace, the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
Obviously, there's significant consequences to remaining associated with ungodliness or what is in opposition to God. And so the truth is that this life is fleeting. It's passing away quickly. Man naturally focuses on this temporary brief blip on the, on the map, so to speak, or dot on the timeline, instead of focusing on what the Bible is consistently trying to teach man to focus on, which is eternity, et- an eternal perspective. And so that's what you see even here with this long, long list of behaviors that David has focused on. There are consequences to sin. That's, got, that's the whole thing that's being missed here is that David is looking for very physical, obvious, open, human-based kind of consequences for oppression. And God's saying there is much greater consequences than just this physical realm in the eternal realm. Now, I will trust when I cannot see. This is where I think David starts to have a change of thought. This is a little bit of interpretive liberty on my part. See what you think. Now, verse 14, he says, he just got done kind of complaining about how the wicked seem to prosper. He describes all of their wickedness. But then he, and, he, and he started out with this mentality of God isn't here. Where are you, Lord? God isn't present. And he actually says something so derogatory as to say God is hiding in times of trouble. God is, I mean, what a derogatory way to describe your God. And that's what he said about him in verse 1. Now he says, but you have seen. He's saying this with confidence. For you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, he's still again focused on God repaying the oppressor. The helpless, though, commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Now see his focus again. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. So the takeaway for me here is you may never understand, but you can trust God anyway. You might not understand why God allows things to be the way they are, where wickedness seems to prosper. But you can still trust God anyway. You see, David expresses a renewed confidence in God's providential care here. I still don't know that he understands this any differently than he did before because you see his focus is very squarely on retribution. But he needs... God needs to be where your gaze is directed in times of trouble, and David seems to reorient his focus here to change the way he's looking at the Lord. I trust you, Lord, is the mentality that one has to have in the face of trial and conflict and difficulty. And you see this described so wonderfully, I don't think you could describe it any better, when it says, the helpless commits, or the word there is entrusts, himself to you. That's the word for trusting the Lord. The helpless, the one who feels like they're in the place that David was in as he started this psalm, the solution to this isn't to worry about the perceived injustice. The, The solution isn't to focus on retribution for the wicked or judgment of the wicked. The focus, the the solution is to trust the Lord and to get your eyes on Him in the face of difficulty, in the face of trial, in the face of troubles, in the face of difficulties that you face or injustice you face, whatever that might be. And so you see a little bit of a change there as he says, the helpless entrusts himself to you. Now you have to remember in all of this that his thoughts are not your thoughts. I quoted that earlier, but Isaiah says that in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But I love this. This has always been one of my favorites. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
and that's a long ways, right? So are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, although David recognizes his need to trust the Lord, I don't think he's truly given this over to the Lord in the sense of having to wrap his mind around this perception that the wicked are never punished. Around his disgust or disdain for the fact that the wicked seem to prosper, there doesn't seem to be any immediate consequences in time. His, voc- his focus stays on vengeance here, and you see that here. And that's your natural response to being wronged. Your natural response to being wronged is to seek retribution. He says, break the arm of the wicked. I want you to punish him and judge him right here, right now in time. Now, recognize or remember that in the context, David is operating within the context of the uh, covenant promise. The Mosaic covenant promise that God made to Abraham. Well, it started with Abraham. It was more the Abrahamic covenant. But he said, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. God did in real time. So there's a little bit of a dispensational angle here that you have to appreciate. God did in real time wreak havoc on those that oppressed national Israel. God did intervene in real time in really visible ways. The utter destruction of people that would stand against him by standing against his nation, the nation of Israel. God had, had done that over and over again. God had wiped the Egyptian army off the map when they came into the Red Sea in pursuit of the people of Israel in the Exodus. God had undertaken in very spectacular ways to deal with wickedness in terms of the opposition against him that was manifest by the opposition against Israel. So bear that in mind as you're thinking about this. David did call for deliverance, and God did provide deliverance in very physical ways, just like he did throughout the, the story of the nation of Israel as you go through the Old, the Old Testament. I don't want to dwell on that, but there's something that you need to qualify sort of the way you look at how David sees this. But God says that you can leave retribution to him. For, at least for our application, we can look at it and say, God, even though our natural response is to, to seek retribution when we're wrong, to seek justice, to, be, to feel like we're being abused and misused and mistreated and focus on injustice, God says, you don't have to worry about that at all. I'll, I'll fight your battles for you. I'll protect you. I'll undertake for you. And I'll work it together for your good. He says in Romans 12, 9, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus promotes a completely different mindset. See, God's goodness is directed towards all because none deserve it. God, Jesus has a perspective of when somebody wrongs you, turn the other cheek. Show them your testimony and your faith in me by not seeking to right the wrong, by not being fixated on vengeance and justice. See, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, and you say, well, why, why would that be the case? And it's because that there's none that deserve God's mercy and grace, not you and not the person who is troubling you or has wronged you. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, 44 and 45, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
How does your father act towards people who don't deserve it? He rescued them when they were dead in their trespasses and sins. You were one of them. He loved them anyway. You were one of them. That's how your father in heaven gave an example by sending his own son. It goes on to say that for he, the father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is not focused on vengeance. God is not focused on this sense of righting wrongs in this life. God is gracious and merciful and loving, and he shows that in so many ways to people who don't deserve it, which is everyone. There is a distinction to be made there. Now we end with, the Lord and his people will be victorious. David has, you know, there's a different application to him in his present circumstance that he's looking for. He's looking again for physical deliverance, but we can confidently say the Lord and his people will be victorious. The Lord is king forever and ever, verse 16. The nations have perished out of his land, meaning he's already shown himself to have judged those that would oppose his plan, which included in this context the nation of Israel coming into the promised land. Verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, meaning he's changed his perspective here. He's no longer having this posture that says God is hiding. God is not present. Where are you, Lord? You have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart, meaning get their focus back on you, get their trust back on you, encourage them, comfort them. Eliminate their fear, cast out their fear because they're now trusting you. You will cause your ear to hear. To do what? To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. God is ultimately a God of justice. The psalm ends with a song of praise. He says, you are king. You have heard. You will provide justice. God may undertake to provide actual temporal justice in the temporal realm. He might do that. Now, we talked about the context of the Abrahamic covenant and the blessing to the nations that bless Israel. That, may, that will occur. God made a promise to that effect. Even in your life, God might actually, when you pray for justice, he might actually provide a method for justice. In fact, the Bible says that God has set up human government. He's ordained human government to provide some measure of restraint against evil and justice against wrongdoers. You can read about that in Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, a couple of different places you can read about that. God has given his spirit to have a restraining effect on evil in this world. This isn't even as bad as it could be. You look at how bad it is, it could be much worse, but God in his grace and his mercy has said that his spirit is actually restraining some of the evil that otherwise would be taking place. So does God provide some sense of justice potentially in time? And the answer is yes. We have some, you could have some expectation of that as you pray for that. You could say, God, would you undertake in that way? But does God guarantee that? Does God promise that he's going to handle things that way? And I would say no. I would say more often than not, God undertakes to use the trials for your eternal benefit, to use the injustice for your eternal benefit, to use the suffering for your eternal benefit. And if you don't believe me, Let's just walk through this series of verses that the Apostle Paul has to end tonight. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this about suffering and about how God, more, more often than not, doesn't remove the suffering. He uses it for your benefit. So in, in one sense, you could say, why does God allow suffering? Because you need it. Because he wants to use it for your benefit. 
Because without it, you wouldn't mature and grow in your faith the way you otherwise could. So there's another ex- explanation to why does God allow human suffering. But Romans 5, 3, and 4 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Most versions have suffering. Knowing that suffering or tribulation produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. It helps you to grow in your faith, to be conformed into the image of his son to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Turn to Romans 8.18 then, or, or just listen. He then goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Meaning that God uses suffering in our life, and any suffering that you may face in time pales in comparison to what God has in store for them that love him what he has planned for you, what the future holds. Then 2 Corinthians 4, I think it's 21. I might have a typo here. It might be 27. But Paul says this, for our light affliction, it's, it's nothing, he's saying, compared to an eternal perspective. It, it's painful in time. But it's nothing compared to eternity. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, now what is the benefit of it? It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You see, God undertakes to use suffering in a way that's needed for you, in a way that benefits you, in a way that ultimately can bring Him glory. So instead of saying, where are you, Lord? We should be saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing me to face whatever you allow to come my way because I know you're present. I know you're good. I know that you want to use this to bring me closer to you and conform me to a closer image of you, to change me, to refine me, to put me in a place where I can learn to trust you more. And I know that without some of this, that would never happen. So I can praise you even in the face of this oppression, even in the face, even when it seems like the wicked are prospering, I can see that I'm the one who's prospering when I'm learning to trust you as I'm being oppressed, as I'm being mistreated, as I'm being affected by sinfulness and the wickedness of the world around me. I'm actually benefiting from that or or can benefit from that. So where are you? Yes, it's natural. It's natural to say, where are you, Lord? But hopefully from this psalm, you can see that that's not what God wants you to focus on. He wants you to see that God is always present, that that truth doesn't change, that God is always undertaking for his own and he always will. So it comes down to rubber meeting the road. You can know that truth, but will you apply that truth when circumstances get hard? Will you practice what you preach? Will you allow God to give you that thinking, that right, eternal, vertical, heavenly mindset in the face of injustice? See, the key is to remember that God can be trusted even when you do not understand. That's what faith is all about, learning to trust God when you cannot see. So when you come to those places, these places that are difficult that David found himself in, in Psalm 10, 1 and 2 there, when you come to those places, remember his character Reflect on his promises and entrust yourself to his perfect, complete, and loving care. 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend here together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Pray that it would have been encouraging to those that could hear it. Pray that we would continue to find our purpose in who we are in you, what your plan is for us, and have an eternal perspective, knowing that the things that we go through in this life are fleeting. That life is a vapor that's here for a moment and then passes away, but we have all of eternity to look forward to. Pray that we would focus on redeeming the time that we have in front of us, trusting you in that process, allowing you to change us and use us to bring you honor and glory so that we wouldn't waste the time that we have here focused on injustices, but instead we could focus on you, our Savior, and how you plan to use those trials and that suffering and that even the evil that's a part of this world for our benefit and for your glory. Pray that we could keep that perspective as we face even troubling times, troubling circumstances, difficulties, day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.